And there ends the reading. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. We move forward now in our study into chapter 10. And uh, I'd like to begin by sharing with you that, like perhaps some of you, my wife and I enjoy a PBS masterpiece theater series called All Creatures Great and Small. If you've seen that or you know the, the book on which that series is based, it's about a a Scottish man who was a veterinarian in, in the northern part of England many years ago, and he wrote this semi-autobiographical account of his life as a vet working uh, with the farmers in northern England. And, you know, one thing you find when you watch that series is, uh, if you don't already know, you find out a lot about farm animals in England, especially sheep, sheep and cows. Now, we've encountered the word shepherd here in this reading, in this chapter, and that is a term that even if you've been watching All Creatures Great and Small, for most people, it conjures up something of a romantic image of a meek and mild man, a shepherd sheltering a gentle little lamb in his arms, you know. And when we think of the day-to-day work of a shepherd, we think of a man who spends hours in peace and quiet on the green hills and the arboreal settings, maybe playing a flute or a harp, pausing to drive the flock into new and greener pastures. Now, again, unless you've been watching that series, and even if you have, most of us really have no familiarity with herding sheep. And so the use of that imagery here demands our learning something more about it than watching a PBS series. It's almost three-fourths of the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. The Lord uses this imagery of sheep and shepherds. And the immediate context of his doing that is the context of the story of the man we read about in the previous chapter, the man born blind in chapter 9. He was healed by the grace and mercy of God. He, the blind man, was a member of the flock of Israel the Old Testament church. God touched him and caused him to do that which is true and right, that is to believe in and on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And as we saw when the blind man did that, the phony shepherds of the flock, well, they revealed their true colors as to who they were and what they were really all about. See, the people of Israel were those among whom Jesus went preaching the message of the kingdom. They were, in the older covenant, considered to be the flock of God. Now, our Old Testament reading today, you heard one of many examples, <coughs> excuse me, in the Older Testament where that terminology is used by Jehovah God referring to the people of Israel. But their shepherds were to be those who would later be called the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests. Earlier on, it was Moses and Jacob, the, the patriarchs, and, uh, and then the judges. It was, it'd be the, the responsibility to shepherd the flock of Israel you know, changed formats and, and faces over time. But in the time of Jesus, it was the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests. And at this point, I think maybe it's time for us to have our crash course in ancient Near Eastern animal husbandry, if you will. Look with me again at verses 1 through 4 of John 10. I'm reading... From the ESV, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Let me just stop there and say, you know, there's some of that that we can understand. I mean, we know 
we can maybe figure out what a sheepfold is. We know what a door is. We know about the, the idea of somebody climbing in a different way. But right away, we've got this imagery, and there's stuff here we're missing unless we dig a little deeper. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. You see, in the days of Jesus, it was a common practice among sheep herders, shepherds, to put their sheep in a pen, a sheep corral, if you will, at night. And there might be three or four different flocks of sheep owned by different shepherds who would corral their sheep in that one single pen. And it had a central gate or a door that had, and it had an enclosed wall around it, you know, posts, I guess, like a corral. The shepherds would then hire a man, here referred to by Jesus as a gatekeeper, whose sole job was to sleep there at the sheepfold through the night. And in many cases, sleeping right in the entrance to the pen so that no one could enter who was not supposed to. The only people who would try to get into the sheepfold and take away the sheep by any other means than the main gate and talking to the gatekeeper, they would have been thieves and robbers. The shepherd, the rightful owner of the flock, would never try to get to his sheep in that way. Now, you see, in ancient Palestine, and so far as I know, even to this day in what's left of Palestine, uh, sheep were not driven by their shepherds. You know, whenever we see pictures of sheep herders today from Scotland or England, and, and you see this to some extent in the TV series I mentioned, we see them driving the sheep forward. The shepherd may be riding a horse. He'll have dogs helping him move the sheep forward. But the shepherds in Jesus' day led their flocks. The sheep followed their shepherd where he wanted them to go. And the sheep because of their close attachment to the shepherd, actually recognized his voice. And in many cases, the shepherds would name every sheep in their flock, and the sheep, much like a dog, would recognize their names when they were called by their shepherd. So it's an interesting fact that when shepherds would come to the sheepfold to collect their flocks the next morning, you, you, like I said, you may have three or four different flocks that are all corralled in the same place, well, he would call his sheep by their names, and only those sheep would respond out of hundreds that might be in that pen. So Jesus is comparing his work as the true shepherd with that of the Pharisees, who were the fake, false, evil shepherds. They are the thieves and the robbers who seek to lead the sheep, the people of Israel, astray. And they're doing that by teaching them, among other things, to approach God through the wrong gate. Now, I think up to this point, most of us can pick up on the analogy of the sheep and the shepherds, that, that imagery used by the Lord here. But I, but I want us to take a special note of the important ramifications of what this imagery means. There are two things in particular I'm going to mention. First of all, the particularity in this image. Jesus' flock... The people to whom he is the shepherd and the gate does not include everyone in the world, any and all, indiscriminately. See, one of the major points of Jesus using that type of language to describe his work and his relationship to his people is the exclusivity, the particularity of it. 
And in this analogy, Jesus is the true and worthy shepherd of the flock. But who are the flock? Who are these sheep? Well, in verse 4, he says that they are all those who know his voice and follow him. And that is in keeping with what we know of how sheep herders and their sheep function in those days, as I've just mentioned. But more importantly is the fact that those who are truly among God's flock, they will not follow any other shepherd than Christ. Or if they start to, they will quickly realize they're going the wrong way and turn back. And, and they may well hear many other voices calling them, but they will respond only to the voice they know, that of their Lord and Savior and King. I, uh, <clears throat> I read a story in, pre in preparing for this message I had to do my own research about shepherds and sheep herding and all that. And this is something that happened near the city of Jerusalem, but back in the early 20th century, long before the modern state of Israel was established. It was around the time of, uh, or the aftermath of World War I. And because of the displacement of peoples and the geopolitical situation, there was a contingent of soldiers from Turkey, Turkish soldiers stationed near that part of Jerusalem, and while they were out, they were noticing a big flock of sheep. And they, de they decided to help themselves to that flock. Now the shepherd of those sheep, he had fallen asleep, and they suddenly wakened to see the flock disappearing over the side of the ravine about half a mile away. And he realized there was no way, no way at all, that he could single-handedly recapture those sheep by force. And so like a really good shepherd, he ran to the edge of the ravine, he put his hands to his mouth, and he called his flock. Now the sheep heard that familiar voice, and they stopped dead in their tracks. And then he called them again, and they heard it again, and in an instant they turned, and they ran one side of the ravine up and down the other toward their shepherd. The Turkish soldiers, they could do nothing to stop them, and before they realized what was going on, those sheep were safe beside their shepherd heading far away from where this happened. And all of that because the sheep knew the voice of their true shepherd. So there is then a closeness between Christ and his flock. And that flock does not include all the sheep in the world, but only those who know the voice of their master and follow him. Now, I think most of us know that not everybody in this world is a Christian. And indeed, that there are many people who are not Christians. So you understand something then of the particularity and the exclusivity of the work and the ministry of Christ. And with all that in mind, I want you to take note again of John 10, 11 and verse 15. I'm going to read those words again. And I've done this with you before. I hope it gets the point across in an interesting way. I'm going to intentionally misread these verses. I'm going to read them the wrong way, and hopefully as you read them in the correct way, in the text of your copy of Scripture, you'll see the point that's being made. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for all the people in the world. Is that what it says? Verse 15, Jesus says, I lay down my life for everybody on earth. Is that what the text says? No. In both cases, absolutely no. So you see the mistakes that I've intentionally put in there. 
The popular notion, see, that many people have about what Christ came in this world to do is that he died for the sins of the whole world, meaning each and every person who has ever lived or whoever will live. And as you can see, even from just those two verses, but there are many, many others, from the words of Jesus himself, that is simply not true. Jesus died on the cross for the sins and deliverance of his flock and only his flock. Now, to be sure, it is a worldwide flock. I mean, look at what Jesus says in verse 16. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so that means the atoning death of Christ and the benefits thereof are not limited to those of the people of Israel who know his voice and follow him. No, there are others too from among the Gentiles. So that we have here, even in this stage of the unfolding of the new covenant revelation in Christ, a whole new flock, a new Israel of God, no longer limited to one ethnic group and restricted to one tract of land in the Middle East. Jesus calls his flock from all the people of the earth, no matter who they are, no matter where they live. The call goes forth. And although that call, the call of Christ, is the call of the kingdom, it is a general calling, a call that will be heard by many, many people who are not his sheep, but only those who are in the flock, of the flock, only his sheep will know that voice and follow him. And it is for them and them alone, that he came and laid down his life. Once again, we go back to the very beginning of John's gospel, John 1.12, but as many as did receive him, the previous verse told, him, told us that uh, the Jews had rejected him, but John says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. So this particularity, this exclusivity, is right there at the very beginning. Who is it that has the right to become a child of God? Only those who have received him. Only those who have believed in his name and follow him. In Matthew's Gospel 1, verse 21, we're told very specifically why Jesus the Christ was coming into the world. Concerning the child Jesus, the angel says, She shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save everybody on earth. No, he will save his people from their sins. And who are his people? All those who are of his flock. No matter where they live or what language they speak. All right, so then that's the first point. Jesus is the true shepherd who leads his flock into all truth and he guides them and he protects them. But then secondly, there's another thing here that we need to take note of. That Jesus, the true shepherd, is contrasting himself with those Pharisees, these false teachers and shepherds. So in direct contrast to the true shepherd, those false teachers lead the flock astray. They lead them into false religion. And they do not protect them from danger. I uh, read about a TV documentary relating to this topic again about shepherding and sheep herding. And one part of the documentary had to do with the rather unpleasant subject of slaughtering the sheep. Now, I think I've told this story before, but it certainly bears repeating here. And you see, these animals had to be led up a long ramp where once they were at the top of the ramp, the only way for them to turn was to the right and right into the slaughterhouse. 
Now, from what I've been told, sheep are not stupid animals. They understand when something is about to happen to them. Um, and, and so in order for this process to take place, those nervous and timid sheep needed to go up that ramp. And so the, uh, the people at the slaughterhouse would use what's called a Judas goat. Maybe you've heard that phrase. You don't hear it too much anymore. I guess because of our lack of familiarity with sheep herding and with factory farming these days and all that sort of thing. But a Judas goat, it was a goat that was placed in and among the flock. I don't know if the goat was placed among the flock for months or days prior. But at any rate, um, the Judas goat was placed in and among the flock and he would start up that ramp on the appropriate occasion. And once he got about halfway up, he would stop and he would kind of look back at the, at the flock of sheep. With an, well, I guess from a human standpoint, we would say it was a look of assurance. You know, they're just beginning to follow him up that ramp. But once the goat got near the top, a door to the left side of the ramp would be opened and the goat would go in that door and it would close immediately. And so the sheep continued straight up the ramp and to the right to their deaths. My friends, so it is in the church with false leaders and shepherds. And sad to say, many churches today are led by those kinds of shepherds. You know, they talk of just about everything but the message of the kingdom, the message of the gospel, the call to repentance and faith and obedience to the law word of God and the task of kingdom building and fulfilling the Great Commission. No, they, they talk of the need to love yourself or be fully confident in yourself uh, talk of getting in touch with your needs and fulfilling your dreams. You know, many of these big mega churches, you go to them and the pastors and teachers, if you can call them, they're wearing skinny jeans and t-shirts and they're, they're giving pep talks like you'd get at some uh, self-improvement seminar. But down to the political end, if they ever do talk about biblical teaching, they want to be sure they're on the woke side, right? So they, they speak out against racism and sexism and homophobia, homophobia and white privilege and all of that. And for those false shepherds and their sad flocks, the worst sins in the world come out to be, from their standpoint, taking the Bible far too seriously. And being so foolhardy as to actually believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven and his word, the Bible, is the only source of absolute truth. Now, the false shepherd rarely mentions the name of Christ and he rarely tells his flock of their need to repent of their sins. If you don't believe me, you can sometime watch some of these megachurch services. Um, you can find them recorded and available on their websites. Listen to some of these sermons. I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm trying to tell you the truth of what's really going on out there. You want to know why the church is so impotent in our day? Why the church just simply folds up like a lawn chair in the face of the withering attack of moral evil and a, a, a statist government that thinks it has more authority than God? It's because of things like this in the church. People are assured that all they need to do is follow the party line, do what the popular culture says to do, get on board with the rest of society. And in the end, it will all work out just fine. But you see, in truth, in the end, it will only result in misery for those who have been so blinded as to prefer the false teachings of the false shepherds and making the wrong choice can be fatal. It can spell doom. You know, one of the uh, most dangerous things about poison 
especially poison in liquid forms, is how much some of them look as clear as water. You know, when I was a student at the University of South Carolina during my undergraduate days, I worked in what was called the work-study program. I don't know, they may still have it, I don't know. But student, full-time students could get a job working on campus part-time. I worked for a couple of years in the uh, student union campus bookstore. Uh, then I worked in the, uh, I forgot exactly what the title was, uh, but the responsibility was is that if you were in this program, you would, they put you to work in the chemical labs or the biology labs, and your job was to wash and clean up the various implements and, and instruments used in some of this uh, study and research. So like, you know, glass uh, beakers and flasks and test tubes. And I well remember, you didn't just simply rinse these things off in hot water. I mean, you had to use a very strong cleansing agent. And I, we had to use something called acetone. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. But it looks exactly like water. And that's one of the most dangerous things about things like this. You can place a glass of some poisons next to a glass of water and not be able to tell the difference. But one of them, from a human standpoint, is filled with death. But the other has life. And in that kind of situation, you've got to determine the true nature of those two different liquids by means of other, uh, by, excuse me, by other means than drinking them first. And so let us note well, there are some churches, there are some church leaders who have a seemingly good appearance, but in reality they are as deadly as poison. And it is for that reason, when we are deciding, for example, if you move to someplace else or you're going to start going to a different church, you've got to decide where you're going to go to church based on biblical criteria or what church to join or what religion or worldview you're going to embrace and follow or have to be taught to your children. We simply cannot judge by appearances. Now, some of you know that my wife is a librarian at a local Christian school and uh, she takes that job very seriously. And in order to uh, stock the library regularly with new books, you know, she uh, surveys a vast number of websites and newsletters, finding recommendations from Christian organizations that re recommend library books for homeschoolers or Christian libraries. And these books are given a short review. So what she will do is she will go check out these books from the public library and review them, or in some cases, go ahead and order them. And she will literally read every one of those books. And I don't know, she can tell you later, but I'm guessing five out of ten, she says, nope, I'm not going to put that in our school library because it's got this foul word, it's got this foul image. So you, you simply can't judge a book by its cover. You simply can't go by what somebody says. Recorded in Matthew 7, Jesus made this point about false teaching and false teachers. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. That is, you will know them by what they do, how they act, what their behavior is. And that is determined by what they believe and what they teach. My friends, the message here is that Jesus is the true and only shepherd. And only those who know his voice and hear his word and follow and obey that word, only they are part of the true flock of the true Israel of God Almighty. And by his mercy and grace, let us be thankful that we have been called and answered that call to be a part 
of that flock. Let us pray.